Hey, this is Jeremy Hogue. You are listening to Ethics and Empathy. I want to read from a paper that was presented to the Anthropological Society in London on November 17, 1863. The author was James Hunt. The paper was titled Negro's Place in Nature. And this excerpt can be found on page 23. The senses of the Negro are not developed as in other races. But the most striking phenomenon with regard to general sensibility is the apparent apathy of the Negro as to pain. The most serious affections of internal organs, the Negro, arrived at a certain point cowers on his bed, at least in the hospitals, without responding by any sign to the care of his physician. So Mr. Hunt is pointing out that when the Negro patient is very sick, he will ignore and hide from his white physician, essentially hiding from the next white man who is about to carve him up in the name of science and who justifies this action because the Negro is apathetic to pain. Mr. Hunt continues, However, in a state of civilized slavery, so let's just stop right there. Hunt just used the term civilized slavery. So 160 years ago, white people, definitely lowercase w, white people, were not only justifying slavery, but the head of London's Anthropological Society, a dude with a bunch of letters and titles after his name, was calling slavery civilized, stratifying slavery, classifying slavery, making sure that the slavery he was discussing was better than other types of slavery. Okay, so back to the words of Hunt. However, in a state of civilized slavery where he, the slave, has acquired some knowledge, he becomes more communicative without, however, betraying any manifestations of pain. Bad treatment causes the Negro, the Negress, and the child to abundantly shed tears, but physical pain never provokes him. Mr. Hunt's observations reveal that slavery can be civilized and the Negro feels no physical pain, presumably justifying the shackling, the whipping, and the raping of civilized slaves. Mr. Hunt's words continue. The Negro frequently resists surgical operations, but when he once submits, he fixes his eyes upon the instrument and the hand of the operator without any mark of restlessness or impatience. The lips, however, change color, and the sweat runs from him during the operation. This sounds like the prequel to the movie Get Out. So I bet you didn't read this paper in medical school or nursing school or social work school or high school. But don't you think that as clinicians, we should know our history? 
Don't you think we should be informed about our past so that our future can be redirected in such a way as to not repeat history? Well, I sure do. So here we go. Welcome to episode one of Ethics and Empathy, where we are going to discuss the issue of race and pain, specifically the pain treatment of black patients. So here we are, what, almost 160 years after James Hunt read his conclusions to the Anthropological Society of London, identifying the apathy and the ignorance of pain that the civilized slave exhibits when poked and prodded. I think it should also be noted that James is reading a a 70-plus page document that he wrote to the members who will listen. This is a good example of top-down leadership, leadership that relies on one or maybe a few individuals who determine the course of action for the rest of us. There's certainly a movement towards the establishment of committees in healthcare settings that are intended to be collaborative. But for anybody that has worked within the system, I think it is fair to say that leadership continues to function with a top-down approach. The establishment of a committee does not guarantee change. If you're a person with big ideas, go join a committee, bring your big ideas with you, and get back to me on your experiences. I would love to talk about those experiences on this podcast. Let's identify the problem we are going to discuss. The National Institute of Health, the NIH, reports that pain is the most common reason for seeking medical care. I feel like this makes sense and that most of us seek some kind of medical care or consultation as a response to pain. Unfortunately, what we know about the treatment of pain is that if you are a white individual, you will have your pain treated more effectively than if you are a black individual. Now, I'm sure there is more than one person listening to this statement, shaking their head and questioning the reality of this treatment, thinking we've moved beyond this issue, probably saying to themselves the physicians or nurse practitioners I work with never undertreat based on race. Or maybe you are a prescriber and you know you have never and would never consider race in the treatment of your patient. Well, good. Then commit to being the voice in your institution that overwhelmingly supports the research that has continually identified the undertreatment of pain in black patients. Be the one who speaks up. Be the one who asks the hard questions. There is a mountain of evidence on the topic of racial bias against black patients when it comes to pain treatment. The thing about racial bias that negatively impacts the treatment of your patient is that these inherent biases are often unknown or ignored. Now, I understand that using the term ignored is much more accusatory than using the term unknown. But think about a time when somebody's pain was obviously not being treated effectively, 
or a time when solving an individual's complaints of pain kept getting pushed further and further down because of other tasks, or a time when treating severe pain started with Tylenol. Now think about race. What does it look like when the individual receiving treatment is black? What does your gut tell you? These are difficult questions, and the way these types of questions are often framed elicits a defensive response. And that defensiveness is certainly a natural protective behavior, but it is also an incredible barrier to change. It is a barrier that maintains the unequal power dynamic that exists between patient and provider and patient and nurse and especially exists when the patient is black. These are not my ideas. These are understandings verified by research decade after decade. As I pointed out in Hunt's paper, the issue goes back hundreds of years. As recently as the mid-1800s, white people were documenting that black people do not feel pain in the same way that white people feel pain. Some could call this a mistaken observation by Hunt. Others might dig a little deeper and find that this idea was advantageous in maintaining the separation of races. I find myself in the latter category and see these statements as reinforcing the nasty root ball that has grown into the systemic and institutional racism that we observe today. The history of medicine and its treatment of the black population has created mistrust and produced a power dynamic that is at its very core an instrument of inequity. I have some personal experiences with this topic. As a nurse, I can look back and see where I have been complicit in perpetuating the power dynamics that result in a sustained inequity and continued institutional racism. Let me give you an example. I'm a nurse caring for a black individual who is complaining of pain. I'm working with an intern or a resident or an attending who is keyed in on the current opioid epidemic. The provider becomes very concerned about giving this individual an opiate. The rationale is that they, the prescriber, need to be convinced this patient can't be treated by a non-opiate before prescribing an opiate. This seems logical and well-informed, especially given the national concerns regarding the overprescribing of opiates. But here's where things get ugly for me. There's a strange satisfaction or knowing displayed by the practitioner who says no to the request for an opiate. The moment when this happens reveals the unequal power dynamic that is rooted in our system. It's like watching a parent discipline for the wrong reasons. It just feels dirty. Let's continue this scenario and, and say that the provider orders Tylenol. Now, I may hint at asking for more, but there is this awkward space where I know the provider is convicted and not giving this individual, the black individual, an opiate. Why do I know this? 
because the provider will use phrases such as drug seeking or I know this guy, he's a frequent flyer. And these statements are coupled with clear body language and facial expressions that indicate no. A terrifying thing about this disgust and judgment is it often serves as a tool for relationship building among healthcare professionals. It's a way to commiserate, to bond, to come together over difficult situations because caring for people is hard. Working in the hospital is hard. Working with members of our community suffering from substance abuse issues or mental health issues or chronic health problems, cancer, and so many other conditions is hard. But this commiserating upholds the institutional racism and continues to cause suffering. If we look back to Hunt's work, just picture all the nodding heads in the audience as he spoke of how black people don't feel pain. These heads have to nod because if they don't, then what? Speak up against slavery? Speak up against structural institutions that harm black people but pay your wages? This bonding that occurs through judgment can cause us to pause when we know we should speak. A developed camaraderie will likely take precedence over the will to dig and find the courage necessary to speak out. I have been a coward more than once in this situation by not advocating and arguing against the provider's logic. Some could find solace in the argument that the provider is responsible to make this decision, but when I reflect on my own behavior, I find cowardice in my actions knowing the individual needed greater pain relief. This story continues with me going back to the individual trying to sell the Tylenol as a viable option. But this is where my participation ramps up. Eventually, I come clean and say, hey, look, you have to take the Tylenol and prove it doesn't work before the provider will write a script for something stronger. I'm saying you are going to have to suffer until the prescriber decides that you don't have to suffer. Now, how is this any different from me saying, don't argue with the cops, just do what they say and you'll be fine. You have to play the game or else they are not going to help you. Just don't resist, don't resist, don't resist and everything will be fine. Here's the reality. It's not any different. This is honestly a story that I have experienced in slightly different forms, but essentially the same story arc on several occasions. I once had a black gentleman I was caring for who told me, if I was a white woman, I would have been given pain medication a long time ago. I've been dealing with chronic pain for most of my life, and I used to be able to get treated. Now all of a sudden, there's an opioid epidemic, and because little white Johnny is overdosing in the streets, I can't get treated. Black people have been dying in the streets for forever, and nobody cares. But now, because white people are dying, I can't get pain meds. He's right. I want to be clear. This is not all providers and probably not even most. I have worked with amazing healthcare professionals who are kind, just, thoughtful, and brilliant. 
but their genius does not erase the realities of systemic and institutional racism. Inequality is alive and represented well in the pain treatment or really the the lack of pain treatment in black individuals. One of the more uh, interesting studies I read in preparation for this episode proposed the idea that when a provider's cognitive load is increased, medical decisions are more influenced by racial stereotypes. So what does this mean? First, let's define cognitive load. This is how much of your brain you are using to complete the tasks in front of you. For example, let's say you are a nurse and you are taking care of three patients and then you get two more patients and now you have five patients. Your cognitive load has increased. Or maybe you are a nurse and you're caring for four patients and suddenly one of your patients takes a turn and becomes critically ill, requiring more medical resources. Well, when that happens, your cognitive load has increased. You could be a physician in the hospital that has a large caseload with multiple patients that are critical and suddenly another patient becomes critical and another and another. I think you get the point. The problem of these everyday situations is that this increase in cognitive load results in decision-making that has been found to be more influenced by racial stereotypes and internal bias. What strikes me about this concept is that in order not to commit unjust acts of racism, many of us need to be able to consciously synthesize the situation. We need to have the faculties and cognitive resources to make unbiased, equitable decisions on behalf of our black patients. This should be more than slightly disturbing. Whether you like it or not, the system has been constructed in a way that leads white people to stereotype and judge black people. So what do we do about it? I will tell you what we do. We consciously work to establish relationships with the black individual whose care we assume. We make ourselves responsible for understanding the history of treatment when it comes to black Americans, and we make ourselves responsible for comprehending how that history influences the culture and attitudes of black patients toward our nation's medical system. And above all else, we must look in the mirror. We need to find ways to connect with those we serve. We must understand ourselves, where we come from, who we are, why we are, so that we can understand others. Have you ever been marginalized or felt alone or was so scared you couldn't make a decision? Have you ever watched a friend get verbally abused, emotionally abused, or raped? Have you experienced these things yourself? What was your childhood like? What was your best friend's childhood like? Did you have friends? Did you want friends? Where are you at now? How have you grown as an adult? How have you not grown as an adult? Is that idea you are thinking about really your own? Is it a new idea or was it planted as a child? Use this insight to your advantage. Use this information to empathize with your patients. 
We need to dig to find those experiences in us that we can use to relate to others. For the sake of this conversation, we need to identify experiences that will drive and propel us to establish trusting relationships with our black patients. We can do our part to actively participate in the dismantling of the institutional racism and the dismantling of the obscene power dynamics that have continued well over 150 years beyond the prescribed expiration date. As a medical professional, we have the opportunity to do amazing, deep work one patient at a time. While others do work to provide legislation and change the structural elements of our system to equalize the citizens of this country, we have an amazing opportunity to engage with individuals, specifically black individuals, in an intimate way that allows us to do our part in breaking down the barriers that have been built over hundreds of years. We can establish trust. We can establish the kind of relationships that contribute to the breaking down of a system that is necessary to move us forward. Okay, so I am going to offer a real-life tool I came across in my research. This tool came from a study titled Reducing Racial Disparities in Pain Treatment, The Role of Empathy and Perspective-Taking. In this study, they asked one group of prescribers to treat the pain of a group of patients, both black and white patients. No direction was given, simply treat the pain. The treatment of black patients and white patients was then compared, and the results showed that prescribers more aggressively and effectively treated the pain of white patients. The second part of this study involved asking a group of providers to do a simple perspective-taking exercise before determining the course of pain treatment. How does this perspective-taking exercise work? Well, it's pretty simple. The study coordinators asked the prescribers to assess the patient and then think about if you were experiencing the pain of the patient, how would this pain impact your life? How would you be impacted by the pain that the patient is describing? When the prescriber performs this simple act of perspective taking, the miraculous thing is, is that the treatment of pain in both white and black patients was equalized. This is a simple act and pathway to equal treatment of pain. And while the act itself is simple, being conscious of the need to perform this exercise and taking the time to perform this exercise is anything but simple. It takes work and direct effort to consciously activate the thought process that will enable us to consider how our patient's pain would affect our own lives or the lives of our family and friends. What if this was my mom or my grandmother, my father, my grandfather, my sister, brother, or best friend? If I was treating a loved one, how would I do things differently? We need to use all of our resources we are given to treat our patients. Resources like medication, scans, and oxygen. But to be at our best, we must engage our internal resources and consciously activate empathy. If we take the time and effort 
to consciously activate empathy. To include this conscious activation of empathy in our resource kit, this study shows we can treat pain equally among white and black patients. The ability to employ conscious empathy is a powerful tool that allows the healthcare professional to overcome internal bias and internal racial stereotypes that results in the equal treatment of pain between black and white patients. Acquiring the skill set to implement conscious empathy and decision-making should be valued and should be taught repeatedly to every level of healthcare professional. If you disagree with taking the time to learn or taking the time to expand on this skill set, then I would argue you are part of the problem and need to do some serious self-reflection. We need to be held accountable. We need to look in the mirror and identify those times when we could have done more so that we can do more. If we identify times where we have been or continue to be complicit in upholding institutional racism, we need to make changes. I don't want people to beat themselves up, but if you have been complicit in the dirty work of the institution, like I have, coming to terms with this reality allows us to do more to be more, to provide more, and to leave a small imprint of hope on society that we can change. Working in healthcare, whether you are a doctor, a nurse, a social worker, nurse's aide, x-ray tech, anybody facing patients has the opportunity and privilege to do good, solid work, human work. We can break down the barriers that have been in place for the entirety of our existence and be the change agents that take incremental steps to dismantle racism one relationship at a time. This is the real job. Head on over to ethicsandempathy.com where you can read a transcript of this show and see the bibliography and do some of your own research. Dig in, folks. Let's be better. 